First Peter is where we are in our study on Sunday mornings. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, and we're going to look at, we've been looking at verses three through 12, one long sentence in the Greek language, uh, a song of praising God for our great salvation, and also we're gonna see today uh, praising God in the midst of the present as well and how he works in our present circumstances. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Heidelberg Confession. There's the Westminster Confession. There are other confessions. We're not a, we're not a Reformed denomination. If you were involved in a Reformed denomination, you would be more familiar with these possibly. We do hold Reformed teaching, however. We do teach uh, the doctrines of grace. We do teach uh, the soteriology of Reformed theology. We're just not in the Reformed denomination category. So these may not be as familiar to you, but the Heidelberg Confession is of a 1563, I believe, is a common confession that is cited in many uh, Reformed churches. And these confessions are basically taking a compilation of biblical truths and they're used to guide preachers in their teaching. They're used to instruct children in catechisms. They're used in just basically giving people good, solid doctrine in a concise form. To protect against error, these confessions were certainly used for that purpose as well because it just takes, takes and makes a concise presentation of truth but summarizing truths of Scripture. This is the first question. It's a question-answer type thing. And they ask these questions, uh, a list of questions and give the answer. That's how it is throughout the entire um, confession. But the first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Think about the question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer to that question, according to the confession, is this. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation." Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now you may not have answered the question that way. But we as Christians do find our hope as we face trials. We find them, that hope in Jesus Christ. Whether it's life or death, it's all about Christ. All I have is Christ. And someday we will all face death unless Jesus comes back first. But our comfort is Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. This world has nothing to offer us. Psychology has nothing to offer us. The th uh, theories and philosophies of man have nothing to offer us. It's only Jesus Christ. Our focus is on Him and Him alone. If there's one thing that Peter is doing for these believers who are facing all kinds of persecution, about to face even more persecution, he is pointing them to Christ. He is sufficient. He will be the one that gives you comfort and hope. And He is the one that gives you a glorious future because he rose from the dead. There's a paradox in the life of believers, isn't there? It's a paradox. Gladness and sadness. Grieving and yet hoping. Today we're gonna to see rejoicing and distressing. That's a paradox. We face the same problems people in the world face. We face the same struggles that people in the world face. There's nothing special about us that keeps us from going through those 
struggles. In fact, we may even have it worse in some situations because one, we're trying to fight against our flesh. And secondly, identifying with Christ brings persecution. It brings rejection. It brings, in some cases, hostility. In some places in the world, especially, it's hostility and even death. And yet, we have this paradox going on. I have hope, I grieve. I have sadness, and I have gladness at the same time. How do you explain that? How do you explain that except for a working of God in the heart of the believer that puts that there? You cannot manufacture what we're talking about in these verses today. You cannot generate these things by your human effort. You cannot generate joy, for example. You cannot generate faith to keep on believing when things are horrible. You cannot generate love for Christ when things are so bad. You can't generate that. That's not a normal human response to what we're going to read about. These trials, these distressing trials that these people go through and we're going through. You see it in verse 6, the very same verse. You greatly rejoice, you have been distressed. Something sustains us that's not us. Something that sustains us that we can't explain. It's counterintuitive. It it's, just goes against human reason altogether. Peter's writing this letter to believers. The elect aliens are called. Elect aliens. God chose you. He chose you to be set apart. He chose you and called you out of this world. You're aliens in this world. This is not your home. You don't breathe the same air as those around you. You think differently. You act differently. You value different. Your values are different. And they hate you for it. In our case, they will start to hate us more and more for it. They're facing financial loss. They're facing public ridicule, physical loss. Look at 2.12, 1 Peter, 2.12. They're being slandered, verse 12 says, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. See that in verse 12, chapter 2? You're being, they're being slandered. Keep your ex behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. They say you're evil. They say you in those, you know, those um, love feasts, they say you're having orgies. That's what they say you're doing there. They say you're cannibalizing children in those places. They make up all kinds of stories about you. They don't understand you. They slander you and say you're anti-government because you won't bow down to Caesar and worship Caesar, and you're anti-everything about society because you don't do the things that people do in society. 2.18, look at that one. Unreasonable masters, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable unreasonable demands made on them. For, go to chapter 4, verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They're reviled, and all kinds of things. I could go through First Peter, and we could just pick out more and more things that we're going to see as we go through this letter, but that's what this letter is. It's, it's, this is what you're called to. You elect aliens. This is what you're called to. And God's going to sustain you through it. Last week, Peter started out by showing us a Godward perspective. He started, showed out, started last week in an interesting way. He starts this letter by worship. He starts this letter by, let's get our perspective. Let's get the big picture. Let's look, let's look at who we are that we are the elect of God, that he caused us to be born again. And he's given us a future, and he's given us an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled. It will not fade away. We're preserved by God. God holds on to us. He will not let go of us. Our salvation is secure. 
If you belong to him, you can never lose that. If he put that faith in you, you will never lose that. If he put that joy in you, you will never lose that. Our lives are rooted in those truths. That is your identity. It starts out with your identity. This is who you are, the elect of God, caused you to be born again into his family of God, giving you a hope and an inheritance. That's the future. That's what you have waiting for you. That's what pulls you along. That's what causes you to keep moving because of that hope. But then he comes to 6 through 9 today, and he's going to show us, okay, let's talk about the present now. Let's talk about how that future hope affects the present. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 9. Let me read those. In this you greatly rejoice. Back to chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. This is the present. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. And greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So how does this future, these future realities of three through five affect you in the present? Well, rejoicing in the midst of a trial, that's how it affects me, affects them. In this you greatly rejoice. In this, in this just takes you back to the previous verses. In this, uh, that description that was just made in three through, three through five of our living hope and a resurrected Christ, our assurance of salvation. In this, you greatly rejoice. You have an intense, expressive term here. You greatly rejoice. Peter uses this again down in verse 8. It's like the bookends of this section, this idea of greatly rejoicing. And let me just make a point here that this term is not found in secular Greek. The Greeks did not use the word joy. They didn't have a word for the word joy. They talked about it like we talk about it in our culture, happiness. That is not this word. Happiness is not what we're talking about here. That's a word that is derived from happenings. It's... Um, it's, everybody talks a lot about happiness, don't they? Everybody talks about happiness, wanting to be happy. Our Declaration of Independence says every American has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What I think is so ironic about that is in all the years that we have been a nation, nobody's ever been able to catch it. Pursuing it, but never catching it. Never catching it. They can't, they can't chase it down. They, they can't find it because happiness is based on what happens and what happens is not good all the time because life isn't always happy. That's externally generated based on something outside of you, circumstances. Joy is internally generated it's rooted in the resurrection of Christ and the hope and the assurance of our salvation. Joy is glad, settled uh, contentment inside, a settled contentment inside. Jesus said, I like this, come unto me all you who labor and weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I think of that, rest. The, the pursuit is over. You found it. You found contentment for your souls in Christ. That's the settled contentment. I don't have to search anymore. I found it. Or it found me. It's the, it's the fruit of having that relationship with God that produces a divine perspective on what happens in life. I see things through a different lens now. It's, it's the contentment and the subtleness and the confidence that I have that no matter what's going on around me, God is sovereign in control and his, he... he governs all things it's not emotional giddiness it's not temporary it's 
put there by God. Understand that. Joy is put there by God in your inner person and cannot be taken away. It cannot be taken away. If you have Christ, you have this joy. Paul writes, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Joy, Galatians 5. And then, folks, that doesn't mean that I don't grieve the Holy Spirit at times and I feel joyless. I, that happens. That happens to me. I'm not saying that can't happen, I, certainly. But the point is, if you're truly a believer, you don't lose Jesus and you don't lose your joy. You don't lose joy. There's an article that Joni Erickson Tata, quadriplegic, who's you're familiar with her story, she wrote a, gave her testimony in a magazine article at a women's conference, and she said, a woman came up to her and said, Joni, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. Joni responded, I don't do it. In fact, let me tell you how I woke up this morning. He says, this is my average day. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I am alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray, Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, get me dressed, sit me up in a chair, brush my hair and teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into this day. Oh, but you do. Can I have yours? Can I have yours? It's a reliance on the Holy Spirit that, that's produced by a reliance on the Holy Spirit because life is hard. Life is hard. You know this harsh realities of life but there's joy you have to guard your mind you really have to guard your mind in trials you do sometimes you can get overcome with emotions and I understand this I'm in that category but you don't really focus on trying to change your emotions you know what you try to focus on? Changing your theology. Or at least focusing on your theology. Because you know what? Emotions follow thoughts. Emotions follow thoughts. And I want to be thinking right. And I think that's what Peter's doing in this section. He's given some theology for you to think about, about trials. You want to think biblically about them. You want to think about them the way God thinks about them. You want to see them the way God sees them. He says, here's some right theology. That's what he's going to move into. Here's some right way to think, to let your mind dwell on this. Don't focus on trying to change the emotions. Acknowledge they're there, but just ask yourself, am I thinking right about the trial? Am I seeing it the way God sees it? reframe it to see it the way God sees it. That's what Peter's doing. And so you have this verse, verse 6, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Very loaded statement. Very real. Very down to earth. Very up front. No pie in the sky here. And Peter gives some realities in this one verse. First, he says, trials are not eternal. Notice, even though now for a little while, they don't last forever. Now, a little while can be a long time, that's true, but a little while is not forever. It's not eternal. Peter said in the previous verses, our inheritance now, that's eternal. But I want you to understand your trials are not eternal. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, they're going to be replaced one day by an eternal weight of glory. They're light in compared to the eternal weight of glory. They're temporary afflictions, but they're light compared to the eternal weight of glory. And so pain will one day give way to praise 
indescribable praise. So, starts out by doing that. You can think of some analogies in life. Just think about a mother giving birth to her baby. Think about the pain and then the praise. You know what? One of the greatest miracles of life is the fact that a woman will have a second child. (laughs) Think about that. If a man had to do any of this, there would never be any children, or or there would just be one. Why would you go through that again? I remember taking a class in um, Dallas before our first child was born and learning how to help and coach and all those kind of things. And at some point in the lectures, I remember just turning off, you know how you're sitting there acting like you're listening, you're not listening, maybe some of you are doing that to me this morning, I don't know, but the point is, you're sitting there listening to somebody talking, you're just looking past them because you really don't want to hear what they're saying because it's just too descriptive, you know, and I'm thinking, but I'm amazed that my wife would want to have a second child to going through the first child because that pain but it brings joy. It brings joy. The pain is replaced by joy. Who, who for the joy set before him, that's exactly what Jesus did, endured the cross, despising the shame. He willingly experienced the pain and suffering and separation like, so we could be born again. Secondly, he says in that verse 6, he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary. And he uses a conditional form here and assumes the reality of the condition. In other words, it would, it would be worded like this. It could, if you amplified it, it could say, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is. It is necessary. So Peter is kind of giving the divine purpose here. God says it's necessary. And there's a divine purpose behind every trial. That God is sovereign in all of our trials. And you can go through the New Testament and, and God uses trials for lots of different reasons, for several different reasons. I'm just going to give a few here in my little short list here. But here's a short list of the things the Bible says are purposes that the Bible teaches for trials teaches dependency on Christ. That's, that's a big one. Teaches a dependency on Christ. I cannot depend on myself. I need Christ. Here's what he says. I was given a thorn in my flesh. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I was given a thorn in the flesh to keep me from exalting myself. Most gladly, therefore, Paul writes, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. God did not take the pain away, did not take the thorn away but said, my grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. He's, he's draining, here's what he's doing. He is draining us of ourselves. That's what he's doing. Draining us of ourselves. Self-centeredness, self-reliance, self-absorption, selfishness. All of it, he's draining us of that. So we will realize that we are weak and need to depend on him. So that's the first one. Another reason for trials, I believe that the Bible so clearly teaches it, it reduces our attraction to worldly things. It it makes the world unappealing to us. As I see the world not able to sustain me in the trial, and I'm constantly having to look to Christ to do that, forced to look to Christ to do that, it can't satisfy or carry me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 73. And so it produces this hope for heaven. I, 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 uh, there's nothing in this world that's attractive to me that I want. This world is not my home. I long for heaven. I long for that place that's undefiled and indestructible, that place that will never fade away or lose its luster like we talked about last week. I long for that place not this place, that's constantly changing, filled with, is totally defiled. Thirdly, trials enable us to comfort others who suffer. And this is an important one because God wants us to comfort one another. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.4, he comforts us in all our affliction 
so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's to be passed along. Comfort is to be passed along. I'm comforted so I can comfort other people. There are times I need to be comforted and there are times I need to be comforting. And finally, turn to Romans 5 for a moment. Finally on the list, I'd add this one. Uh, Trials develop in the believer uh, for character, proven character. And I would have you look at Romans 5 for this. Romans 5 verses 3 through 4. James also says this. James says that uh, endurance leads to greater maturity. Uh, Trials produce that endurance. Trials bring about that endurance. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because they produce this endurance that brings about greater maturity. That's in James chapter 1. But this is Romans chapter 5. And not only this, verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, notice, proven character. Proven character. Hope. Sometimes we equate suffering as God being absent from us. And that he's removed, somehow removed his divine loving hand from our lives. But this says no. No. He is developing character, tested character, proven character. Character that's not just in theory, but it's actually lived out. Character. You know, it's, you, you raise children. You raise children and... You, uh, you want them to avoid suffering and hardship. <laughs> Parents are like this. I was like this. But at the same time, you know that those hardships will produce character in their lives. So you taught, you're taught, I, I really want to, I really want them to avoid hardships. But I know that that's what it takes to produce character. This this psychologist wrote something very interesting here. It's a hypothetical exercise. He says, here's the problem. He says, God wants wants to prepare them for hardship. They they need their faith refined, is what he would say. But he goes on and gives this this illustration, it's a little exercise. He says, imagine, he said, that you have a child, and for five minutes, you're given a script of what that child's, child's life will be like. You're given the script. And you are given an eraser, so you can edit it. You, you can take out whatever you want. You read that your child will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which will come easy for some kids, will be laborious for your child. In high school, your kid will make a great circle of friends, and then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, this child will actually get into the college they wanted to attend. While there, they will be in a car crash, and your child will lose a leg. A few years later, your child will finish college and get a great job and then lose that job in an economic downturn. That's the script. Okay, so this is the script, he says. You have five minutes now edited. And he says, what would you erase? And he says, more than likely, you'll erase all the stuff that causes him pain. (laughs) Causes him pain. And yet, from Peter's perspective, he said, I'd leave the script just the way God wrote it. Just the way he wrote it. Because none of those trials are wasted moments. They're God's investment in your child or his children to develop endurance and to refine their faith. One pastor called himself a member of this current generation of adults, helicopter parents. 
helicopter parents. He writes, we are constantly trying to swoop swoop down into our kids' educational life, relational life, sports life, etc., to make sure no one is mistreating them, no one is disappointing them, no one is failing them, so they can experience one smooth transition, one success after another. That's, That's very convicting. How many of us do that, have done that? Trying to keep them from hard things. When it's the very things that God wants to use to refine their faith. Or, as we're going to see in a moment, to prove that they never had any faith in the first place. And that they need to fall on their face before a holy God and repent. That's what God uses trials for, isn't it? But he wants to produce proven character. He wants to produce maturity. Folks, listen, we've got a faith muscle. We've got we to strengthen it because we don't know what's around the next corner. We don't know what's coming. And God wants to prepare us to meet the greater challenges that we will go through in life. Those who are caught up in prosperity theology, those who are caught up in experientialism, those who are caught up in good feelings, comfort, wealth, and all of that stuff, they're hurting true Christians, paralyzing them from being able to deal with the problems of life because that's not real life. Real life is distressing trials. That we face. It's the reason I can't be a post-millennialist. I, I just don't see things getting better. I don't think it's the agenda for a Christian to think this world is ever going to treat them right. It's the reason I can't have an eschatology that says that Christians are one day going to have such a huge influence on the world that we're going to Christianize this whole world and then Jesus is going to come back. I can't hold that view. This First Peter teaches me anything. It's that things are not going to get better. The agenda for Christians is going to be distressing trials and I need to endure proven character, greater dependency on Christ, weaned off the things of this world to become more like my Savior. So he says that, third thing I would say is in this verse, trials are, are painful. Distressed, see that word, distressed? by various or multicolored trials. That's what various means, variegated, various trials, all kinds of trials, all different kinds of trials, mental, emotional, physical, all kinds of trials, bad mistakes you make, all kinds of consequences of bad decisions, all those things are trials. They come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. That's what it means, various. And they distress us, and they are painful. And anybody who says you're following God, if you're truly following God, you would never have these things, and that's just not true. Jesus, he bled drops of blood drops, sweat in the garden. Paul, he was always in anguish over being beaten and left for dead and all of those things. He was distressed at the behavior of the Corinthians, you may recall, and we've talked about that in, in the past. He was feelings of distress, same word, I have feelings of distress. That's real life, that's where we live. That is what it means to live in this fallen world. But Paul sa- Peter says, <laughs> you're joyful, you're joyful. Somehow, I can't explain it, But somehow, those distressful trials do not destroy my joy. They do not destroy my joy. I, when I respond sinfully, oh, it may be joyless at first, but when I get my perspective right, when I start thinking right about the trials and all of these things, and even in the midst of them, there can be joy. And sometimes you don't know that until you've gone through that and seen that, because you don't have the grace on this side of the trial, but when you're in the midst of it and you see the grace, oh yeah, God, I hate this, but I have to settle confidence that you're on the throne. I have to settle confidence and contentment that you are, you're right here in the midst of this with me. 
God does not change the circumstances and let me go around it. No, sometimes it's just go right through it. Go right through it. Somebody said, I can't, why, don't I just, why doesn't he just wait till I'm mature to have me go through those things? No, that doesn't how it works. He, he matures you through those things. Well, here's the main purpose of this passage, really, the main purpose of trials we see in verse 7. 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that this is the purpose clause of these distressful trials that you are experiencing for a little while. They are proof, and the test, and the result, as mentioned in these verses, it's to prove genuineness. Uh, It's the the proving grounds of our faith in Christ. That's what he's saying. It's the proving grounds. Like metal is, is tested and refined to see if there's any cracks in it, any weak places in it. So God exposes us to the fiery trials to prove our faith, to prove the genuineness of our faith, to to still be there when I've gone through something horrible and to still be there believing. Think about how many people profess Christ. How many people profess Christ and the moment a trial comes, they fall away. See, people with genuine faith do not fall away. And let me take you to Matthew 13 just for a moment. Matthew chapter 13. And in Matthew 13, you have the parable of the soils. I'm just going to point out one of them to you. It's the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, referring to the heart responses that people have when they hear the gospel. And one of those heart responses is found in Matthew 13, the rocky soil. You don't have to know the exact reference on that, but the rocky soil is the the heart response that when it hears the message, it receives it. But because there's a bedrock beneath it, the roots cannot go deep to touch and get into the water. So he he talks about the rocky soil. Then he goes down to verse 20 and he explains what the rocky soil is all about. Notice in verse 20, the one on whom was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But that could be a camp experience. That could be a revival meeting experience. That could be any kind of emotional experience and somebody, and you just have some emotional experience and you, you receive it with all oh, this joy. And he says in verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution, see that? When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. You see, the test of that faith was the persecution. The test of that faith was the hot sun beating on down on that plant. And because it could not, roots could not go deep, we're told in Matthew 13, to get water, it fell away. Just it's a superficial profession of faith. There are too many superficial professions of faith because it's so easy in this country, has been so easy in this country for a long time to believe in Jesus and suffer no consequences. But I promise you, when there are consequences, the cost will be counted more and more. Warren Wiersbe said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. You don't know if you have real genuine faith until you're tested. And that just gives you a confidence. Wow, this was such a horrible thing over here, and I'm still believing. That's counterintuitive. That's counterintuitive. It makes no sense to the world. How could you be, go through that and still believe in your God, in your Jesus? How can you do that? That's genuine faith. Because it wasn't put there by you. It wasn't generated there by you. God put it there. Just like he puts the joy there. He puts the faith there. We're going to see he puts the love there as well. 
Job in the Old Testament, Job, some people think Job was tempted by Satan. No, Job, Job was set up by God. Have you considered my servant Job? He is the most faithful man around. Oh, yeah, Satan says, sure. You've given him such a cushy life. Who wouldn't follow you if they had this cushy life? Satan, you just do what you want to him. I have confidence in his faith. It's a proving of his faith that was on display in that book, book of Job. You have the freedom to take everything. And what does Job say? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Job 23.10, he says, but he, knows the way I he, but he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That is Job 23.10. That's an Old Testament principle, just like James, what book are we in? 1 Peter, just like 1 Peter chapter 1. Same thing. Same thing. Comes through as gold. Purified. 1 Peter, turn to, where are you? 1 Peter 5, go there. 1 Peter 5. It says in verse 9 of 1 Peter 5, talking about Satan being a roaring lion. He says in verse 9, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Your faith muscle will get stronger. <laughs> will get stronger. Here's a song, part of a song we sing here. How firm a foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The goldsmith, his job was to remove impurities from gold. That's why he uses that here. It's to make us more fit for heaven. Swindoll says the variety of trials are like different temperature settings on God's furnace to burn sin from our lives, to purify and grow us, to conform us to the image of his son. In the Near East, they said the goldsmith would keep heating that gold up until he could see his own reflection in the gold. That's what Jesus wants to see. That's what God wants to see. The reflection of his son in me and you. You need a big picture? You need some right theology about your trials. I mean, that's pretty, pretty powerful. Proves your faith. He sustains your joy. Does it all because may be found to... Re Where are you now? First Peter 1. Look at verse, end of verse 7. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek, indication, the Greek here indicates that this is not talking so much about praise and glory to Christ, which, it, it, which, we go, which is certainly going to happen at the second coming, but this is also just the reward that comes to those who endure persecution. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then he goes on in Revelation chapter 4 and says that the very people who have those crowns are the ones who will cast them before the throne. I'm given a crown to give it back. There's vindication is the point. Vindication of the second coming of Christ. It was all worth it. It was all worth it. All these earthly trials were worth it. Let me see if I can take you into verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter had personal contact with Jesus. His readers did not. Peter had personal, personally walked with Jesus. His readers did not. 
They're almost a generation removed from the time of Christ in a different region of the world even. How difficult is it to love somebody you cannot see? How difficult is it to love somebody that you don't spend any time with in a physical way? No tang- nothing tangible. There's nothing tangible. How do you love somebody like that? The world must think we're crazy, and they do. Because we love a Jesus we cannot see. Remember doubting Thomas? I will not believe unless I see. For him, seeing was believing. For Peter, believing is seeing. Think about that. Believing is seeing. Spiritual eyes. God sustains me. Counterintuitive, yes. Nothing tangible here, yes. Just God working in my inner man. Giving me incredible love for Jesus Christ. I cannot explain. Though I'm put through all kinds of trials, all kinds of losses in life, and all kinds of difficulties in life, I still love him. I cannot explain that. I cannot explain that to you. Can you say, would you say that this morning in spite of everything? You had a bad day yesterday, but you got this morning and say, I still love you. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? How do you explain that you still believe in him? After the bad and awful things that have taken place in your life, you've lost a child, you've lost a, a relative, a loved one, you've, lo- you've lost things and you've been mistreated and how can you explain why you still love him? The world looks at you and says, all you've been through, why would you love him? Why would you still believe in him? What sustains you to do that? It's nothing human generated here, folks. It's nothing human generated here. It's not because he did this and this and this for me that I love him. No, it's not that. It's more likely he did this and this and this and this to me. And I still love him. Real faith is, real faith manifests a real love for Jesus. I say, God, I'll love you if you take away all the trials. No. It's loving you through the trials and producing his love in you that he's all about. He ends with this in verse 9. Let me just paraphrase how that verse goes. You find, you find joy in loving him and knowing him and you reflect the glory of his face when you do. And Peter writes, and let me just expand it here, you obtain as the outcome of your faith, this kind of faith that, that loves our invisible Lord, this kind of faith that believes in a God that leads you through unexplainable things, that kind of faith that gives evidence of salvation of your souls. That's the faith we're talking about there, not only now, but in forever and ever. Peter's point is if you love him and you've never seen him and if you believe in him and you still haven't seen him, what you do see all around you are trials and difficulties. If that's all you see around here and you still love him, then you must really believe in him. Folks, it's not that I just go to church. It's not that I just go to church. It's not that we as Christians just go to church. The true Christian loves Jesus. The true Christian loves Jesus. When somebody is struggling with their assurance of salvation, I go to this question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Rod, life has been so hard for me and so difficult for me. I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. And I go to this question. Do you love Jesus? I think that's an incredible test. Do you love Jesus? I'm not talking about what you did, where you went, what you prayed. I'm talking about do you love Jesus? The one who loves Jesus, that love has been put there. That's a love that is sustained by the worst of trials that you have been through, and you still love him, and you still believe in him. If you're this morning, if you're not a Christian, let me tell you something. You don't have any hope. I have not said anything this morning that applies to you. None of this I said today applies to you if you are here and you're not a Christian. If you are here and you do not love Jesus, there's no hope for you. 
I have no hope for you. There can be hope for you because God sent Jesus into the world to die on a cross for your sin in your place to take the judgment and wrath that you deserve on himself. He lived the perfect life that you're supposed to live, but you can't. You try, but you can't. You fail, you can't do it. You're a sinner. That's why Christ had to die. Put your faith and trust in him. That's how you can have hope. That's how you can have hope in the midst of trials and difficulties and challenges. Doesn't mean life will get easy for you. Life may get harder for you. But the point is, he'll be with you. Thank you, Lord, for this time today. Thank you for your truth and your word and just praise you, God, for these dear people that gather here on Sunday mornings and want to hear your truth. They're not looking for easy words. They didn't come here this morning to hear easy words. They didn't come here to be puffed up and to get all giddy about Jesus. They come here to be equipped, God, to face the difficulties of life, the normal trials of living in a fallen world, to glorify you and to respond rightly and biblically in the midst of those trials. We fail and we sin. We don't always do it right. I mess up all the time, Lord. You know that. I don't always get it right in responding to trials. But when I'm through with my fit or emotional upheaval and settle down and get my perspective right and think about this biblically, I realize it's the loving hand of God that would bring that challenge my way because you saw something in me that needed to be proven, tested, weaned off of, purged of, whatever. You know me. I don't know me as well as you know me. You don't know anybody in this room. Nobody in this room knows themselves better than, than you know them and what they need. You know what's necessary for each of us. I don't want to be superficial this morning about trials. It's, it's a talked about subject all the time, but it's just so superficial. It's real, it's hard, and we need to throw ourselves on God and see it the way he sees it. And we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.